You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In 2015, I spoke with author Gordon Chang about his books and his views on the Chinese Communist Party. Here is that interview. On today's podcast, we'll be talking to author and political commentator Gordon Chang. Gordon is best known for his book, The Coming Collapse of China. I'm so happy to have Gordon here on Talking Taiwan. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule today. Welcome to the podcast, Gordon. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be on Talking Taiwan. Wonderful. Um, so I see that you're a lawyer by training, and now you write a lot and comment about uh, China and Asia. Like, How did that trajectory in your career come about? Well, I was practicing law for about 25 years, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I also wanted to do something else, because I'd always wanted to write a book since high school. Mm-hmm. And while we were living in China, um, it occurred to me that uh, the Chinese political system was unstable and that it could not sustain itself. And so I said, I've got to write this book because I don't want anyone else to do so. And so I just made a decision. Um, it was something that I, had, as I said, um, it was just boiling within me. And um, my wife said, yeah, we can do this. And that's how it occurred. Wow. And so how long ago had you been living in China? Um, like you were born there, right, and grew up there? No, I was born in New Jersey. Oh, you were born um, in New Jersey. So- Sorry. <laughs> And and we were um, we lived in China from August 1996 uh-huh. um, through about May 2001. Um, but before we moved there, we were traveling to China um, all the time from California, because my primary client was the Shanghai branch of Citibank. And so at some points we were going there once every six weeks, oh. and almost spending as much time in China as anywhere else. And so we just decided this was getting a little bit tiring on the plane. And so we decided to better serve my client. The best to do was just to move there. Right. And it was a real eye-opener, of course. Yeah, it sounds like it. Is there something that happened or, you know, things that you observed specifically that really drove you to really want to write this book? Well, when we were in, in China, um, you know, when we arrived, um, I can remember my wife on the phone saying, Mom, China's not communist anymore. And, and I agreed with her. Um, but as we lived there, as we worked there and traveled around the country, it became evident that the story that almost everyone was buying at that point, that uh, China was reforming, moving in the right direction, really wasn't true. And so it occurred to me that I was looking at things differently than my clients were and and almost everybody else. Because, you know, when we were there, um, I would have clients who would buzz into Shanghai, stay at the Grand Hyatt, which is really one of the most spectacular hotels in the world, and they would say exactly what we said when we first arrived, that China was not communist anymore, it was moving in the right direction, things were going to be great. But um, those guys only stayed just a few days. And so it was evident that uh, living there just gave us a very different perspective on everything. Right. That's that's really fascinating. And I suppose also, since you were dealing with the legal system and law, you had a very interesting perspective and insight into how things work over there, right? Yeah, we were doing deals. Um, um, my client, as I mentioned, was um, Citibank, and essentially we were competing with Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, trying to bring Chinese companies to the public markets. 
And, and this was fascinating because you got to know their businesses, you got to walk around everywhere and, and to see things. And it was a really intensive um, experience for us. And it was a great time to be in China because the economy was booming and it, things looked like they were going well. And then um, towards the end of the 1990s, 1998 or so, the economy just fell apart. And that exposed a lot of flaws in the system that really weren't evident before. But as I mentioned, you know, even when things were good, we could see the real problems inherent in the Communist Party's system. And so that had an effect on uh, the way we viewed things, especially when uh, the economy started to stumble and stumble very badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you talk about some of those things more specifically? Like, I imagine there's things about the way that business is done or things about the system there that led you to believe there's going to be a collapse. Well, I, I first of all thought that the system really couldn't reform itself. I mean, it could make some positive changes here and there, but those changes were really only at the margins, and that the fundamental system of the party um, was unreformable. And without structural and fundamental reform, I didn't think China could move forward. Um, so essentially, I looked at it from an inability to make further changes. You know, there was no Deng Xiaoping anymore, mm -hmm. and there was a political system that had uh, really was only in favor of very small, minor adjustments. And right now, what we have is a Communist Party that is actually moving in the wrong directions on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. um, so what we are seeing is the inability of the political system to change for the better. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm curious, like, what kind of initial feedback did you receive on the book? Because I could imagine there's probably a whole spectrum of reaction that you would get. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, you're absolutely right. It was an entire spectrum of, yeah, this is terrific, to this is the worst book that's ever been written. <laughs> um, so um, it, it really depended on, on what people were thinking and how they viewed China. And also, this was written at a time of great optimism about Beijing. Um, so um, it, it came as, as counterintuitive to most people. Right. Well, I mean, even now there is. Right now, China is like the second largest economy. Everyone wants to do business with China. So if you were to write the book today, is there something different that you would say than you said when you wrote it in 2001? Yeah, in 2001, I thought the system couldn't last a decade, so I'm about three and a half years at a time. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so I probably would have said uh, 14 years instead of a decade. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I think the fundamental message is the same: that the system is unreformable. You know, I looked at World Trade Organization accession um, as being significant, and I think it was probably less significant in retrospect because. Um, Foreign companies and, and other countries um, really were not willing to hold China to the promises it made um, mm -hmm. when it joined that mm -hmm. global trading body. And so I think that it was much less effect than, than I had first thought. But what we're seeing, though, right now is the same dynamic that I talked about of the inability of the system to change itself and uh, to move in positive directions. So the fundamental message that I had then, uh, I would certainly say the same things, and, and even perhaps in stronger terms than I did then. Mm -hmm. And could you summarize some of that for readers who may not be uh, familiar with your book? Well, basically, it's, it's the question of um, China in a changing world, um, where the world is moving very fast, um, but Beijing is not, and, and certainly uh, right now, it's even worse than that. Uh, 
when I was writing the book, China at least was moving in what everyone assumed to be a, a better direction, um, and I did as well. But now, of course, you have increasing political repression. You have uh, essentially the absence of economic reform um, because, you know, you have some minor improvements during Xi Jinping's tenure. But in his more than two years that he's been at the top, we have seen on balance a move away from reform because there's been the attack on foreign companies and essentially China closing itself off. Um, and then you have increased state stimulus to keep the economy going, taking China away from its only sustainable growth model, which is one based on consumption. And then, you know, the consolidation of state enterprises, which is exactly the wrong direction, and as well, increasing state subsidies for state enterprises, again, a move in the wrong direction. So under Xi Jinping, um, you know, we've heard all this Maoist talk, all of these mass line campaigns, this political purge, which is masquerading as an anti-corruption campaign. This is really a China in distress right now. And we are seeing, I think, what are the final stages of the Chinese Communist Party rule in China. Well, how do you think that's going to come to an end? I, I think that there's any number of different ways that it can come to an end. But as I emphasize in the book, um, the real driver is economics. Um, you know, we're seeing a China which is growing, I think, in the low single digits, not at the 7.4% that they claimed for last year. Because we're seeing a lot of underlying data, private surveys, corporate results that really point to an economy that is growing at a much slower pace, if it's growing at all. And we're seeing the consequences of overstimulus, uh, the program that was started by Premier, then Premier Wen Xiaobao at the end of 2008. We're seeing China now with a massive property problem, and, of course, a debt crisis. You know, the Chinese leaders have been postponing the symptoms of all of this with more stimulus, but they haven't been able to solve the underlying problems, and they basically made their problems bigger um, mm -hmm. with this big debt overhang, which could be the largest debt crisis in history. Right, and if China collapses, how is that going to affect the world? I mean, because it's such a global economy. Well, you know, if people understood what was going on in China, I think it would have much less effect than it would otherwise have. Um, because a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, this is China's century. They're going to have the world's biggest economy. If they don't have it now, China's on the march. And when the thing falls apart, these folks are going to be completely stunned, and mm -hmm. it's going to shock markets. Mm -hmm. But if markets knew how bad China was now, I think it would be discounted in stages, and the effect would not be so big. But, you know, everyone says, look, China's the engine of global growth. Well, it's not. Because to be an engine of global growth, a country has to buy the products and services of other nations mm -hmm. to create growth elsewhere. China does exactly the opposite because of its predatory trade policies. So when China falls apart, um, yeah, there are going to be dislocations in countries that sell commodities to China. But by and large, the world's going to adjust very quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't think that it should have as major an impact, you know, apart from people who will be stunned, but that's their fault. Mm -hmm. Apart from those folks, um, I don't think it, we're going to see as much of an effect as people um, right now would think. Yeah, and I mean, it's just incredible now in this age of the Internet and social media how closed China's also been. They don't allow Facebook and certain social media websites just to keep control on all of that. And I don't know, maybe that also could be delaying or impacting people's awareness in China or the reaction of the people there. 
Well, I think that it does, but also it, it, cre- it delegitimizes the party. Because a lot of people know um, about the outside world. They travel outside, they read about mm-hmm. it. Um, and so it delegitimizes the party because, you know, most people in China believe that a one-party system is not appropriate for a modernizing society. You know, it's just inconsistent with the modern world. And yes, because of their control, they can delay their failure. But nonetheless, I don't think that they can postpone the ultimate result, which is China moving to, um, you know, a much more free uh, free society. Eventually, that's got to occur because that's what people want. People want more say in their lives. They don't want to be treated like infants. And clearly, you can see this in Hong Kong, where Hong Kong is very closely economically integrated with uh, the rest of the People's Republic. But people there say, well, look, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a three-year-old. You know, I can decide what's good for our society. And people in Hong Kong, you know, have made it very clear that they want to govern themselves. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think China, of course, has the Great Firewall, which is the most comprehensive and sophisticated set of Internet controls in the world. And so they can prevent um, uh, some conversations that go on. But nonetheless, it's self-defeating because the Chinese people know what's going on. They travel around the world. You know, they can read things. Um, And I think people there basically believe that a one-party system is just no longer appropriate for a modern society. And so, ultimately, this is self-defeating. It's also uh, undercuts the legitimacy of the party, and eventually it is going to be one of those factors contributing to its failure. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible that people haven't had some major uprising or protest against that alone, because as you said, people in China travel abroad, and I'm sure that they can see things from other perspectives. It's just incredible that they're still living and accepting all these things that are going on. Well, they can accept it, uh, and they have to accept it because of the coercive nature of the party. But, you know, the one thing that's really important, and it's perhaps the most important trend in China today, and that is the Chinese people are losing fear of the communist system, even Mm -hmm. though it is becoming more repressive. Mm -hmm. And this was highlighted by the Freedom House report, which was issued about a week ago. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as people become more assertive, as they become defiant, you know, eventually they are going to do what the Chinese people have done periodically. Um, you know, in 1919 and 1989, mm-hmm. you know, we have seen this, um, and it's going to happen again. Now, have you lived in uh, other parts of Asia besides China? Well, I've lived in, in uh, Shanghai and in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and of course traveled around the region, um, because people who live in Hong Kong, you know, always do that. Um, right. So, but the two places I've lived or Hong Kong and Shanghai. Okay. Um, and imagine that your book probably got some interesting reception in Taiwan. What's been the reception there? People in Taiwan read the book. Not everyone agreed with it, of course, um, but I think that it gave hope to a lot of people on the island that they could indeed um, govern themselves, have their own society, and be separate and apart from the People's Republic. So um, in that sense, it, it did stir a conversation. And, and although um, not everyone believes that the People's Republic will fail, uh, nonetheless, I, I think that it, it got people thinking about some of the bigger issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, you've visited Taiwan before, right? Yes, many yeah. times. And actually going there um, in March. Oh, great. And what are your impressions of Taiwan? Well, Taiwan's terrific. You know, when I first went there, which was the early 1980s, I thought, you know, go to Taipei, and I thought it was pretty grubby. Um, 
and um, you know, I, I was not really impressed. Um, mm-hmm. But these days, though, it's very interesting. You go to Beijing, you see magnificent boulevards and huge skyscrapers, and it really takes your breath away. But the problem is in Beijing, you no longer have the vitality of street life. You go to Taipei, it is exactly the opposite. You've got terrible architecture for the most part. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah. it looks a little run down. Right. But nonetheless, you have vibrant street life. There's a vitality in society. And that's mm-hmm. so much more important than buildings or whatever. And that is the strength of Taiwan society. So I am so much more impressed by Taipei than I am by Beijing. Yeah, you know, you go to Taipei, you've got one big building, and that's about it. In Beijing, <laughs> right. you've got a lot of big buildings, and you've got, um, you know, these really massive bureaucratic structures. But at the end of the day, the West, the only things that I find impressive in Beijing these days are the Forbidden City and the Temple of Heaven. You know, it's the old Beijing um, that is that is really impressive. The new stuff they've done... Yeah, they they basically crapped up their city. Great. It's always interesting to me because, uh, of course, I am more focused on uh, Taiwan and the situation in Taiwan. For me to think about, from that perspective, what could be the impact of Taiwan on Hong Kong or China, meaning with the how democratic Taiwan has become and with the sunflower movement and a lot of the movements that you see happening in Taiwan, what kind of impact does that have on Hong Kong as we see the umbrella movement there and, and what impact could that have on China? Yeah, the, the umbrella movement was inspired by the sunflower movement in Taiwan. Um, and, and that's really important. Got to remember the sunflower movement was in March and April. And, the, and you look at Hong Kong where the umbrella movement really starts in September. I think that you can clearly draw a straight line between um, the occupation of the legislative yuan and the occupation of the streets in Hong Kong. You know, you're seeing problems in what Beijing considers to be its periphery. You have it in rejection of uh, China all over Asia right now, and that's very important. And it's it's not just in places like Taiwan and not just places like Hong Kong. You know, we saw it in the recent elections in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the Burmese um, uh, turning away from the Chinese. India now with a much more assertive position. Um, and of course, the November 29th elections in Taiwan. And those, you know, Ma Ying-jeou mm-hmm. um, made China relations uh, in the issue in the last 10 days of that campaign. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so this is something which is very clear right now that uh, what we saw in Taiwan is also evident around China's borders. Right. And so do you think that the umbrella movement in Hong Kong could be part of the collapse of China? Well, I think that it's I think that it, it shows the weakness of the Chinese regime. Remember Chinese regimes always fail from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing these problems in Hong Kong and of course uh Tibet and uh, Xinjiang, uh, what the Chinese call Xinjiang and what the Uyghurs who live there call the East Turkestan Republic. So you're having all sorts of difficulties, um, uh, Beijing, in, in governing what it considers to be, you know, its border areas. And so, yes, I think that this is a symptom of real problems because this is going to work and will work its way in. We've already seen sympathy demonstrations inside the People's Republic itself where you have these uh, protesters hold up signs um, supporting, you know, the Hong Kong students and mm-hmm. demanding the vote mm-hmm. for themselves. 
and then having their pictures on social media, and even listing their names, basically daring the regime to come and get them. So I think that this is going to be a problem for China. And the issue in Hong Kong hasn't ended yet because this protest is, yeah, the, the street occupation is over, but this whole conversation between the people in Hong Kong and uh, C.Y. Lung, the chief executive mm-hmm. there, and Beijing, this is continuing, and it's not going to stop. Were you in Hong Kong uh, at any time during the Umbrella Movement or or in Taiwan during the Sunflower Movement? Did you have a chance to see any of that firsthand? No, we we didn't see that firsthand, unfortunately. Um, but we're going to Hong Kong and, and Taiwan um, in March, and, and we'll get a chance to talk to people. Yeah, great. And you have another book called The Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that book, and have you been to North Korea? Yeah, um, I've technically been to North Korea, um, as anyone who takes the demilitarized zone tour uh-huh. does. Okay. But when I wrote the book, um, Americans were not permitted into North Korea. And now um, I just want to go there, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. with all of the Americans and others who mm-hmm. have been held by the regime. Uh, I think it's a little bit dangerous right yeah. now. And mm-hmm. I agree with the State Department that it's not a good idea to travel to North Korea, mm-hmm. which I'd love to do. And eventually one day um, we will. But right now is not the time. Right, right. Um, so what are your thoughts on uh, nuclear proliferation? Well, unfortunately, the United States right now is not doing enough to stop the North Koreans from selling um, ballistic missile technology and nuclear weapons to um, countries like Iran. Every time North Korea detonates a device, the Iranians are on site in North Korea. And we know that the North Koreans were responsible for that Syrian reactor that the Israelis mm-hmm. destroyed in September 2007. Mm-hmm. The United States knows all of this stuff going on, but we don't do anything or we don't do enough about it. And of course, one of the things we need to do is call out China, because China has been helping the North Koreans sell all this stuff to dangerous regimes. And indeed, the Chinese have been directly selling um, materials and technology directly to the Iranians for use in their nuclear program. So this is something that the United States needs to do something about. And we need to be able to call out the Chinese in public on this. So far, we've been afraid mm-hmm. to do that. And also since uh, it's kind of uh, something that's very topical that, that was recently in the news, of course, um, the film, the interview, the political satire about the two journalists who were instructed to assassinate Kim Jong-un. What do you think of the situation with that? What's your take on that? Well, at this point... Um, I think the United States needs to do much more about uh, cyber espionage, cyber hacking, and all the rest of it. Got to remember that more than half of North Korea's cyber warriors are actually based in the People's Republic of China, mm-hmm. many of them in Shenyang. Mm-hmm. And also, um, these attacks were routed through Chinese IP addresses, which because of the Great Firewall, the Chinese knew about these attacks going out into Sony, and also the exfiltration of more than 100 terabytes of data Mm -hmm. um, from Sony. So uh, the Chinese were complicit in this, and we need to be able to call out Beijing in public about this, because it's just like issue of nuclear proliferation. We know the Chinese are involved, but we don't do anything about it. That's true. That's interesting. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about that angle. Yeah, and it's really important because the North Koreans wouldn't be able to maintain their superb uh, cyber warriors were it not for Beijing. Um, And can I ask, um, since you mentioned that you're going to be going to Hong Kong and Taiwan, um, is there another book in the works or can you talk about the purpose of your trip at all? 
you know, I'm, I'm speaking uh, to the World Taiwanese Congress uh, mm-hmm. in Taiwan, and um, no, there's not another book in the works, largely because things change too fast. So um, I'm writing articles and speaking, um, and, you know, eventually when the world slows down, I'll write another book. <laughs> right. And so if people want to find you, if they want to read your writings, because I know you contribute to a number of different publications or find out more about you, how can they find out about you? I archive everything on my website, which is dot com, And uh, my Twitter handle is Gordon G. Chang. Okay. And so um, I tweet my articles. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gordon. It was such a pleasure um, speaking today, and I hope you enjoy your trip to Taiwan. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Gordon Chang, an author and political commentator. Visit our website, www.talkingtaiwan, to learn more about Gordon and for links related to the items mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.